Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also here to dispel a misconception about Donald Trump voters. Yeah, that's relevant, right? The election is well, it's still more than a year away, so it's it's fine. But it's coming up. That's the thing you need to know. Uh, this is critical to understanding everything going on. Uh, the misconception is that Donald Trump voters are poor and uneducated, and that's why uh, he won the presidency. That's the misconception out there. And it's not really true. Like, there are poor and uneducated people in the voters for any candidate, but they don't actually explain Donald Trump. You may find that surprising based on everything you've been told ever. And first, we want to look at that with some studies that I'm going to rip through right now for you. Here we go. Study number one. Uh, this was reported in Pacific Standard Magazine in April of 2019. Uh, a new study of Obama-Trump voters. And uh, that's a term for people who voted for Obama when uh, that was an option and then voted for Trump when that became an option in later elections. Surprising, right? Why would they do that? But they did a study of Obama-Trump voters in Iowa, the state of Iowa, a great place. And they found that in the 31 counties that flipped from Obama to Trump, and that's the most counties of any state in America, in those 31 counties, the number one driver of that phenomenon was race. It was the counties with more white people, people who identify as white, you know. Uh, that was where the flip happened. Uh, they did not find that economic status indicated anything, whether the counties were rich or poor or in between. That was not the driver in Iowan counties that went from Obama to Trump. It was primarily race. Second piece of evidence here, this was reported in the Washington Post in June of 2017, so they were trying to kind of pick this apart not too long after it all happened. Multiple surveys showed that two-thirds of Donald Trump's primary voters in the Republican primary and two-thirds of Trump's voters in the general election were above the national median income. Quote, white voters without college degrees below the median household income made up only 25% of Trump's voters. End quote. Uh, so that's from the Washington Post looking at several surveys there. And the overall finding is that Trump voters were richer than average. Isn't that surprising? Data point number three, this was reported in The Atlantic in uh, April of 2018, and they're reporting an article in a journal called The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. UPenn political scientist Dr. Diana C. Mutz uh, did close analysis of 2012 and 2016 polling data, right? So two elections that went very differently, back to back. And Dr. Mutz looked at where the support was coming from for Trump all of a sudden and found that the main thing driving it was a feeling of white replacement, uh, which is a, a theory that you've heard about, uh, you know, from mainstream Fox News and from the people in Charlottesville uh, that were rooting for white people, I suppose. That belief that white people are being replaced by non-white people is extremely toxic. And it also explained a lot of Trump support uh, rising up between those two elections. The other thing Dr. Mutz found is that among poor voters uh, who were deciding between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016, they tended to go for Hillary Clinton if they didn't have a lot of money. That's not what you've heard. And then one more data point here about those millennials that get reported all the time. Washington Post in December of 2017 looked at many surveys and uh, put them together and found that 41% of white millennials voted Trump. So 41%, uh, not a majority. But then looking at them, they found that 86% of those Trump voting white millennials were employed. They had jobs. And they were also 14% less likely to be low income than non-Trump voters. So uh, white millennials voting for Trump 
tended to have jobs and have more money than the average person voting. I know that was a lot of data, uh, but also I think it's important to look at things like that. And until I see enough data that contradicts it, that's a very important thing to learn about what happened in the past election and may impact the future election. And that brings us to our guest today because he has amazing things to share about Trump voters and about so much more that I think we don't understand about the American people and their specific current political divide. Our guest today is also very funny, among other things. He is the multi-talented journalist, comedy writer, and author, Joel Stein. You may recognize Joel Stein's name from dozens of columns and cover stories for Time Magazine, and his new book has the following title, here it comes, In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. One more time, that uh, very fun tongue-in-cheek title is... In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. It is funny, it is fascinating, it is fact-driven, and uh, through his travels and reporting and more, Joel paints a picture of an actual political split in America today that you may not know about, similar to not knowing that poverty and a lack of education does not define Trump voters There's a whole split going on that people haven't quite caught up with, I think. And I think Joel lays it out brilliantly through visiting places from Texas to Los Angeles to uh, the strange mansion of Dilbert creator Scott Adams uh, to explore exactly what's going on in the actual country that we actually live in. There are all kinds of funny stories in this episode, also all kinds of facts and figures that are very illuminating. And we're going to get to the not a secret battle, but I think an underreported divide that could determine the next election and the next direction things go. And uh, minor spoiler, it's a battle between two kinds of elites. And elites is a term we will define for you when we get into it, because that kind of has a different meaning, too, if you look at it the right way. Anyway, that's a lot of uh, foreshadowing and setup for a very fun conversation that we'll get into right now. Please sit back or sit in the pool of cartoonist Scott Adams, gazing at his mansion's tower that is shaped like Dilbert's head. That is a real thing. Either way, here's this episode of The Cracked Podcast with journalist, comedy writer, and author Joel Stein. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. And Joel, I guess, first off, are you an elite? Do you qualify? Oh, for sure, as are oh. you. Oh, okay. Schmitty the Clam <laughs> is the most elite name. I think most, there was a 19th well, century president probably named <laughs> Schmitty the Clam, I assume. <laughs> so you, uh, uh, what qualifies you as an elite? What is it? Well, it's probably my education. Well, it's, it's all the things that Rush Limbaugh talks about, like the four horsemen of the, <laughs> I forgot what he called it, but of the elite, basically. It was academia, government, the media, there's one more obvious oh. one. Anyone who works in those kind of worlds <laughs> and, and, you know, works in the world of ideas is definitely a member of the elite. Of course, he like did a four horsemen metaphor for things like people going to college. Oh, terrible. Really bad. Yeah, no, for <laughs> sure. You know, he's got that poster that I think I had, that Dungeons and dragons poster of the four horsemen. He's got them all. You know, he's got Obama's face on one of them. <laughs> Yeah, there's so much that's interesting in the book, but I feel like I would like think everyone listening of, to this podcast is a member of the elite. Really? Is it so? It's I it's so. the it is an interest in ideas and an interest in being educated or, or understanding yes. the world better. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, if you poll most people and certainly most Republicans, they think college is doing damage to our country. Yeah, that was because this book it has so many fascinating stats and also polls. And there is one poll you cite that. 
only half of Americans now think colleges do any good, and more than half of Republicans say that colleges have a negative effect on society, when polled recently. Yeah, you can see the, the, what they're thinking. They're thinking that when you go to college, you should learn a skill that helps you get a job. Yeah. And instead, people are going to college, they're being taught evolution, they're being taught the Bible isn't true, they're being taught all kinds of politics, and it's causing problems in our country. So, so yeah. that's what they're thinking. I suppose they're picking up a social life, too, that is more drugs, more sex. Right. Oh, what's happened? You know? Yeah, they're yeah. picking, in addition to <laughs> these horrible ideas, there may be an STD or two. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's also interesting that I think you're right that an interest in ideas and education and so on, it does create this elites in, in a positive way thing. And it's also interesting that it sounds like it's not that dependent on money. Like, like maybe money is a side effect or maybe money's involved. Well, often but, it's not, because I... I yeah. For one chapter, I talk about these kind of secretive groups that we've all heard of, the Trilateral Commission or, you know, Bohemian Grove. Oh, like the Bilderberg, is that one? Bilderberg, yeah. Davos, some of them we know, some of them we, we know a little bit less. Yeah. I'm behind on what Glenn Beck scribbles on chalkboards. but I, Yes, I think any of those groups, of yeah. right, and, and the ones he probably doesn't even know about. Yeah. If you go to any of those, most of the people there, there are certainly billionaires there, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of people who work in NGOs, who work in the media, you know, for, for newspapers who work for the government, okay. uh, who aren't making a ton of money at all. And they're definitely powerful members of the elite. Oh, because they have influence. And a because lot they of get to talk to the billionaires. And they get to talk to the billionaires or they get to, to have influence over our culture. They get to run institutions and money doesn't, you know, a lot of the rich people I've met in my life, like really rich people, they own like 12 Arby's in Omaha. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you you could own all the Arby's in Nebraska and not be a member of the elite, unless you were Warren Buffett and just decided, you know, got stoned one night and decided you wanted to own all the Arby's in your neighborhood. Like, oh, uh, man, that's that sounds uh, like a plausible scenario if I, if I was in that role. Sounds great. <laughs> but yeah, no, you, I meet rich people who own like a bunch of truck stops in Texas or they, they you know, they distribute this one part of the gasoline handle. Those aren't members oh, of the right. elite. Like they don't have that kind of access or influence. And I, yeah, I, I suppose the reverse might be, I just saw the new Bill Gates documentary on Netflix. It mostly focuses on Bill Gates's foundation and like the charitable work. And they frame it as a thing where Nicholas Kristof writes one op-ed in the New York Times about third world poverty. And then Bill Gates reads it and guides the foundation toward working on that. Like Nick Kristof is not fantastically wealthy, right. but he wrote something that got put in front of the richest guy. Yeah, and so exactly. And, and and I'm sure he didn't even have to write it to, to get it to Bill Gates. I'm sure he met, he knows Bill Gates and has access to Bill Gates besides just in, yeah. in print. And I also think his speaking fee is probably pretty high. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he's not He's not a billionaire at all. And you mentioned meeting people. And, and in this book, you do a lot of travel and you do a lot of being around everywhere from Texas to Scott Adams's mansion, which I want to know everything about. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you also you, you describe that in your career, you've been in something you call the loop. What is the loop like? How is it? Well, the loop is something I made up when I, my whole life, I think I'd wanted to become a member of the elite, even if I couldn't explain what that was. I knew yeah. I just wanted to be part of something bigger. And I, the world felt very big and I didn't know how big and I wanted to not just see more of it by travel, but just like find out how it worked. And I remember like, even as a kid, I was really obnoxiously aspirational and wanted my parents to take me to like French restaurants. And I, oh. or- <laughs> I ordered like escargot and my parents were like, you don't want that. And they used a really good technique, which is telling me that escargot are snails. Oh yeah. That should have dissuaded me. And yet I, I went through with it and like 
tried to eat them. <laughs> so I was that kind of kid. And then I, the way in, I thought, was to get into a really good college. So I worked, mm. I worked pretty hard to try and game the system and do that. And I got into a good college, and I was quite satisfied. And then I had an internship at Newsweek in New York. And I remember there were so many invitations you get, when you, especially back then when you worked for a media company, I mean, even now, that they were just being handed my way as an intern because people didn't feel like going to that screening or that book party or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I remember like, oh, there's a whole world of these kind of events and parties where, where this is why like Mr. Rogers knows who like Jay-Z is because they're all like in some green room somewhere or they're at some party. They're at some Time yeah, 100 weird. type party where they meet. And the whole world was starting to make a little more sense. And, and I remember calling that world the loop. And I wanted to get into the loop. Yeah. And it, it seems like you found your way through your work and through adventures. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, there's this great quote from uh, C.S. Lewis that I found where he calls it the ring. And he calls it the inner ring. And he warns people. It's a college speech he gives. And he warns students against spending their life and their energy <clears throat> trying to get into their inner ring. Because there's always a more inner ring and you are never going to be, you know, emotionally fulfilled by this pursuit. And it's going to cause you to compromise your morals in this effort. And I could, I could not disagree more <laughs> with him at all. I would, I would rather be in the loop than write those next like eight Narnia books after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a much better use of my efforts and time. So this loop, it, it, it seems- well, Do you feel like you've- to an, to an extent, sure. Yeah. But, and I, I super agree that it is based on like meeting people. Mm -hmm. And also I, I think the conservatives who are terrified of the elites, they have correctly diagnosed that colleges are the way into it. That's correct. Uh, yeah. Like that's, that is one fact that they've spun out a bunch of bullshit from, you know? That's totally true. And I noticed yeah. that when I meet people and I'm, I've withheld trying to find out where you went to college, but usually- so I'm excited to talk to you about this because there's a part where you cite an interview that Joe Biden did in public mm. and they were like, On the Today Show. yeah, and they were telling him, hey, all of the Supreme Court justices went to Harvard and Yale, basically. Isn't isn't that a bunch of elites? Isn't that a problem? And he's like, well, I went to Syracuse. So, I mean, I'm I'm some idiot, right? Yeah. In power. And you said, hey, Syracuse grads must feel kind of sad about that. That interview Joe Biden did. And I I am one. Didn't like oh. it. Oh, don't don't care for it. So, uh, wait, so do you think I'm right? Well, you, you're the, yeah, the I'm not a I dumb ask. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, do you know your, I, I mentioned in the book, but do you know the motto of Syracuse? Oh, I don't remember. It's in Latin, but it means something kind of wonderful about learning. And yeah, then I was like, sounds right. Biden seemed to want to replace it with, hey, we're not Harvard or Yale, right? <laughs> no book learning here. Yeah. yeah. We're morons in a way you like, you know, <laughs> like it's not good. <laughs> yeah. And then in the in the book here, I from Jump, you kind of do a framing of society being in a, a churn of populists versus elites, if that's fair to say. Is, yeah. is that a pretty comprehensive way to, to look at uh, at least American society? Yeah, I don't think just America. I think that's what's going on in Europe and other places, too. And I think it's, yeah. a, it's a more accurate way to look at the divide right now than what we previously thought of as, or we still think of as, as conservative and liberal. I think the divide now yeah. is not about that. It's about nationalist or populist or however we want to say it, authoritarian versus centrist Democrats or neoliberals, I guess, is the clearest way to, to put that. And yeah. I think that's the real divide. And you're seeing it like in England, for instance, that's the split right now, right? Like sure. Boris Johnson splitting up his own party. And some people are like, no, this is populist craziness. And then other people are saying it's parliament versus the people. So that's a real, real yeah. populist thing he's bringing up. And it's same with Trump. I mean, 
Trump doesn't have particularly, he's certainly not hawkish internationally, like a, a normal conservative. And he doesn't seem to have any fidelity to like Anything, controlling the correct. budget. Yeah. yeah, but also just normal <laughs> conservative values don't seem, totally. uh, it's, it's very, he wants the lowest interest rate possible. He's not against government spending. He's not against infrastructure. He's, it's about giving the majority what they want right now. Yeah, everyone yeah. else be damned. And is that demand to have it right now why populism is destructive to institutions? Is that why it, it breaks things down? Because like, oh, we got all these existing structures in the way. What if e we just Economically, yeah. Because, I mean, uh, you know, a normal conservative would be really into free trade, right? And yeah. he is not at all. I mean, almost to a to a far left kind of extent. You know, if you think about typically, you know, keep jobs in the USA, that's a very unionist left-wing kind of thing to say. So- it's destructive, I guess, for two obvious reasons, one of which is, yes, if you give people what they want right now, they're going to want free money, and soon you're going to be Venezuela and wiping your, your butt with leaves, right? Like, yeah. it's going to— Yeah, you, but what kind of leaves? Come on. No, not even—not the Charmin uh, leaves. Charmin, <laughs> okay. The Charmin is already making leaves in Venezuela that are pretty darn good. Okay, but, all right. Yes, that's one problem. The other problem is, is the nationalism part. You become very tribal sure. once you become populist, and— and xenophobic, and you start to find enemies both oddly in the elite, but also among you know foreigners. Yeah, because it's it's any other you can pick. And anything outside yeah. your tribe. Once the world is corrupt, and you have to hunker down, you become tribal, and anyone outside of your tribe is an enemy. The flow of this book, you you kind of look at both of those tribes and then look at, uh, or, or at least you look at populists and you look at elites and then you look at super interesting ways there are kind of digressions from that and new versions of that. But you you made actual trips to do this. And first you went to Texas. You went to the town of Miami, not in Florida. It's pronounced uh, Miami, even though it's spelled Miami. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, Miami in Roberts County, Texas. You say in the book you selected this town in this county because of over 3,100 U.S. counties. Roberts County had the highest percentage of Trump voters in 2016, 95.3% of people there. So over 95% of them voted Trump. Yeah, and there aren't that many of them. Uh, there's 500 people in the town, and uh, yeah. I think I met all the non-Trump voters. It seems like it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I met most of the town. They were so friendly. I had the most amazing time. I really liked those people, and they weren't at all – the stereotype that I think people in these, you know, coastal elite towns are given about Trump voters. They went to college. They weren't poor. They weren't particularly angry. They weren't as overtly racist as I think people would normally attribute to them. They certainly knew, they knew more about my culture than I knew about theirs, both because wow. they, they had traveled much more than I would have thought. And they watched TV. So they know like, They've probably seen Modern Family. Like they, they know the extremes of what my sure. people are, whereas <laughs> I didn't really know much about their lives. That's true, especially with mass national culture. I think we have really effectively broadcast what's going on in what gets called the blue states. Yeah. Like, like everybody's aware of it. It's on TV. Yeah. it's, it's And on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird <laughs> what we've chosen to watch as a society. It's all economically aspirational. Like when yeah. I, I'm very, very old as you can tell by the timbre of my voice. And, <laughs> and when I was growing up, there was all these shows about like lower middle class or very poor people like Chico and the Man or even All in the Family or Good Times. Oh, yeah. It was just part of the culture. You knew some people, you saw someone's life who wasn't super rich. And now 
I don't know if if I'm being delivered much of that. I'm being delivered tons of like housewives and Kardashians and modern family and you know, the ultra wealthy. Well, especially the whole basically invention of reality shows. Like it seems yeah. like the very first ones were we PBS just looked at a family, but now it's just the extremely wealthy people in various cities. Yeah, people dig like, that. Like that's even the title, basically. Which is the <laughs> that I do get into this part of the book where I I eventually figure out there's two different kinds of elite. That's one kind of elite we're talking about is yeah. those Kardashian types. There's the populace and then the elites. And then it, well, you also look at the elite populace and the populist elites, basically. Like it, yes. all, it all crosses over. Yeah. And then and I know you want to hear about Scott Adams' house. So we, I won't want to skip anything. Oh, yeah. 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 Looking a little more at, at Miami before we, before we depart it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, they, you found that 33.2% of the people there have a bachelor's degree or more. The poverty rate was only 1.5%, which is way below the U.S. at 13.5% and Los Angeles at 20. Median income 15% above national average. It's the home of billionaire T. Boone Pickens. It was. He just magnate. passed away. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't. Like a few weeks ago or yeah. something? Oh, okay. Yeah. He tweeted with Drake once. It was very fun. That's how oh, I've heard of him. Oh, that's 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 what's probably on his gravestone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tweeted with Drake. Drake Drake tweeted like the first million is the hardest. And then T. Boone Pickens replied uh, something along the lines of, no, the first billion is the hardest. I think he was not a billionaire when he died due to, he gave away a lot of money and he got divorced a ton of times. The two forms of philanthropy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, and so uh, we don't think when we we are told about quote unquote Trump country, we're we're thinking of like a condemned coal mine in some in some right. uh, d- disaffected there place. There aren't enough condemned coal mines to and have him win an election if that was if that was really what Trump country was. Yeah, and because uh, so many of this this county that again over ninety five percent of people there voted for him, they are richer, more educated than the average person. It's very rural. There aren't a ton of people. No, and they're uh, very rural, very white, very Christian. Yeah, because that that was also interesting. You found that in this county, Trump lost the primary. Ted Cruz beat him fifty to thirty, maybe oh, yeah. partly a Texas thing, but it seems like they're mostly yeah. Christian and opposed to Democrats. And like, yes, if Trump's the vehicle right. for that, fine, sure. Right. If I if I had been able to get the numbers and really thought it through, I would have liked to find the county which had the highest percentage of Trump primary voters and gone there. That gets complicated oh, weird. because the primaries, you know, people drop out and. It became complicated and those numbers were hard to get. This was much easier to get. But I realized once I was there that, oh, these aren't the, the hardest core Trump voters. These are hardcore Republicans. Yeah. And then because also you even go to a party. It's called the 33 party. Great and, party. And yeah, what was great about it? It was just super fun because, you know, I'd spent a week there and everyone would invite me to their houses. And I knew more people at that party at the end of the week than I know at a party in L.A. Oh, uh, that sounds great. Yeah, well, it's yeah. one really nice thing is that this is a really tight-knit community, and they they all sort of know each other, and they hang out at each other's porches. And I mean, I mean, it sounds like every story everyone's ever done about, like, I went to the middle <laughs> of the country, but they really don't look at their phones all the time, which is nice. <laughs> Those things of, like, we went back to Trump country to see if they still like him. It's always a diner, and it's always, like, somebody yes. disaffected yeah. and low well, on money. And you, you went to yes. a county of Trump voters who are not that. But they, but, but I think the main thing I walked away with was, you know, I think, oh my God, these are white Christians. Like, how do they feel aggrieved? Like, what right do they, like, why are they angry? Sure. Things are fine. Like what's going on? Like, yeah, the rural communities are are like declining. Is that it? And then I, I got there and I realized that 
you notice acceleration, not speed. And what they're noticing is that their you notice, position. You notice acceleration, not speed. Interesting. I like yeah, that. I, I, that's mine, not Einstein's. And um, <laughs> so they are noticing a, a, a diminishing of power compared to what they once had. Now they still might be white Christians might still be the, by far the most powerful block in this country in every way. Yeah, but less so than they were 30 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's probably true. Yeah. So I mean, you can think about it like it used to be. I'll give this guy a job because he's a good guy. Like, I know him. He's a good guy. Right? That probably doesn't hold as much water anymore. Right? It's not. Yeah. That, that's not as acceptable. And I think Steve Bannon noticed that angry men are a really powerful group. And if you uh, can harness that so. energy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and men feel like, uh, I heard the Cambridge Analytica guy say this, that they feel essentially closeted. That they have these thoughts and feelings that are they feel totally justified and acceptable and they can't say those things anymore or they can't like whistle at a woman anymore or whatever it is and they have to like stop being themselves and they're really angry and resentful about it and yeah. i think people feel like when people talk about the country going the wrong way and them wanting to stop immigration and stop this country from changing they're feeling that loss of power and they're not wrong about it yeah, and, it, and it, it goes far beyond this one county in Texas. You found a, a 2017 Public Religion Research Institute survey that said 48% of Republicans thought there was, quote, a lot of discrimination against Christians. And then that same in that same survey, 43% of those people felt there's a lot of discrimination against white people, and only 27% felt there's a lot of discrimination against black people, which is, that's almost definitely noticing acceleration uh, and not speed. That is, that is really based on extremely recent changes. <laughs> yeah. I was playing, I was at these people's houses in Miami, Texas, playing this game called Wahoo. Have you played Wahoo? Uh, no. It's, uh, I think it's like Parcheesi, except it has the advantage of the Bordish in the shape of a cross. <laughs> Everyone's house was so full okay. of crosses in Miami, Texas. Like, yeah, I don't well, know how you, many crosses you have in your house. I, well, none. And also, how many crosses were you gifted uh, and I believe made out of old books? Yeah. So there's this <laughs> thing that I thought was just uh, in Miami, Texas, but it turns out it's in like Christian type community, Christian communities in lots of places, rural communities, is you get specifically Reader's Digest condensed books. Yeah. Which are plentiful and also in a sense heartbreaking for me because this used to be the way elites went into the suburbs and got converts. Yeah, like missionaries. Interesting. Yeah. This was the, these are the books of missionaries. It was like, read this Herman Woke, Woke, I don't even know how to pronounce it, book or, you know. My grandparents have shelves of them. And for people who don't know, I, I think it's a thing where it's a volume of like uh, three or four novels that are great novels. And they've also been condensed both for length and for uh, dirtiness. Basically. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but you still get a taste of all these different authors and it's faster to read. And it's, but it's still confusing. You're like, why are these these Faulkner characters so angry. Like, <laughs> there's no incest going on. There's no like, what? Right. What do they condense Faulkner to? Just like we were in Mississippi. Like, that's probably it. <laughs> yeah. So they, uh, they would take these books and then they carve crosses out of them. Yeah. So they kind of destroy the book in essence. But um, it seems like a lot of band sawing. A lot, a of, lot of band sawing, which causes, you know, you have to wear a mask because it causes a lot of dust. Oh, boy. And I, by the way, if anyone wants to buy tons of my book and do that to it, I'm totally fine with it. Hey, sales is sales. Exactly. Yeah. Things are desperate in the book world. <laughs> 
so anyway, I, yeah, I, I do not really have any crosses in my home, but it seems like they do there. And then it's, it's as you said, made of everything from wood to books. And then their board games are cross-shaped and, and everything's very uh, driven by that. It's very critical. Yeah. There's a lot, there are a lot of crosses everywhere I went in Miami. Even people who didn't, the few people I met who didn't go to church regularly, even they had crosses in their house because it just aesthetically, that's kind of what your culture is doing. Wow. So it's just like, that's what a house looks like. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's that's where you you go to the cross store to get your decorations and you put them up. Well, and because throughout this book, you have a lot of stats about uh, basically trust in institutions collapsing. Uh, we talked about colleges being something that people are disliking or afraid of. And then also there's another uh, study here in 1975. 44% of Americans said they had a great deal of confidence in the church or organized religion. By 2018, only 20% did. So more than half of those people fell away in a couple decades. Yeah. One thing I kind of trace in the book is the fact, and there's a lot of negatives to do that come with this, but people used to go to organizations kind of on a regular basis in their town. Yeah. I mean, you can think of like town hall meetings, but also like the Elks Club and like- Yeah, the Kiwanis. And, yeah. Yeah. And so that was something that that kind of held communities together in, in some ways. Men spent a lot less time with their children and their family, which was the negative because they would go to these clubs and basically oh, go sure. drinking. Yeah. So there were, there were negatives. But I think once people spent more time with their family, probably also when TV came around, people spent less time with each other. And I think that's had a lot of consequences. There's this great speech that Jimmy Carter gives, the crisis of confidence speech, yeah. which is – uh, it's truly a great, great speech. And he predicts everything that's happened since then based on the lack of trust that you know we had post-Vietnam Watergate and just predicts the disaster that can happen if we don't try and fix those things. Yeah, well, it isn't uh, that speech. It gets referred to as the Malaise speech, right? Like yeah, people describe yeah. it as a disaster in, in terms of how the public took it. Yeah, it turns out that the, that's a little bit of a... Um, Urban myth. But that's a there myth, was something yeah. else that happened like the next day that caused Carter to really crumble. But yeah, no, that speech is thought of as like that's the moment when his presidency kind of falls apart. And right. admittedly, like it's a bummer of a speech. Like Reagan comes around and gives Morning in America, which is great. Um, yeah, and he doesn't give a ton of solutions in the speech either. But as far as a, a piece of writing that lays out the problem before us, it's amazing. Carter probably just failed to say. All of these dangerous things will happen while an old actor tells you everything's great. Like he should have Definitely. diagnosed that and then, <laughs> then people would have seen it coming, you know? <laughs> everything's better with an old actor telling you it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I've done a bad job of just explaining that the book is, is also funny or tries to be funny. <laughs> we've well, I, got so serious, everything we've I've, talked about. I've driven us so far into stats No, no, but, too, but the but book is full of, does have plenty of stats and history and yeah. theory. But I definitely thought that the way to frame this was to write something that tried to be funny because there's something absurd about the state we're in right now. Whereas things were going along really well. If you look at global economics or even, you know, U.S. unemployment rates or all the things that I thought would cause a crisis, like some kind of horrible natural disaster or economic right. disaster or war. The Run out of fuel or something. Yeah, no more water. Like the things that I was taught as a kid were going to be what caused these kind of disasters in the past of moving towards totalitarianism and nationalism. Like none of those things are happening. This is a completely unforced error. And yeah. it seems absurd <laughs> to me and sort of funny because it's just so illogical. Do you think that's maybe part of why we have this narrative of 
all the Trump supporters are poor and uneducated. They're all in disastrous oh, right. personal situations. It's the situations. liberal narrative, too. People have to have right, three exactly. jobs. Like people are working so much harder. I interviewed Tucker Carlson for the book, and he literally said to me, no, things are worse than they were during the Depression right now. And I just, I was like, what are you talking about? Did he they, proceed to pull out a chart of stats or anything? Or? He did talk about economic inequality. Okay. Uh, and he, his argument was that people don't revolt when they're poor. They revolt when there's large economic inequality. But I mean, things aren't bad. Things were bad in like the late 70s. There was, during the Malays speech, there was yeah. huge unemployment. There was huge interest rates. There was, gen, there was punk music. Like no one's revolting at an EDM concert. <laughs> right? Like things are things are good and yet we're freaking out because some great change has occurred in the last 10 years. Is it just a change we're talking ourselves into then? No, I mean I think that there'll be historians who explain this in one sentence in history books eventually, but there was a great change that occurred. It it had to do with the move to a knowledge economy, it had to do with globalization, mm-hmm. uh had to do with which also led to immigration. Society changed in a demographic and technological way. And there was, there was a sense of progress. Like we don't think of gay marriage as being that big of a deal or that sudden of a change, but it was a big sudden change. And there's been a lot of those type changes and people, people are wrestling with that. And then there was, you know, a move to cities that was very significant throughout the world. I, I, I can't simplify this down to one thing. I can simplify it to a great change occurred and a lot of people are uncomfortable with that change. Yeah, that does that does seem like it would especially encourage the the tribalism uh, mm-hmm. all around to say, oh, if stuff's changing, I'm going to stick more and more to the people who are yes. like me or who have changed the same way as me. Or, yeah, I think so. Uh, so the the adventures in Texas, like you said, the book is very funny. You have a bunch of adventures. Uh, I, I was a weird bed and breakfast, yeah. and then there are scorpions in it. Oh and, my God. Uh, yeah, and, <laughs> scary. Those are scary moments. There's also one one other thing about the town because uh, you mentioned it was less racist than you expected. It seems like it was less racist, but also you found some incredibly weird ways it was racist. Like there was this insane local legend in Miami, Texas, about a black family moves into a house in town. And the legend was that the family were spies for the NAACP. They were like like intelligence agents for the NAACP. And then the legend is when the black family moved back out, it was because they had completed their work and determined that Miami was not racist. So they'd gathered all the information. I made several <laughs> calls to the NAACP and emails and they about this. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get re- a hold of their intelligence wing or just the main office? <laughs> they would not respond. Yeah. I should have tried a little bit harder, but I tried like five, six times. And it was, yeah, they, I assume they just thought this was too ridiculous to, to deal with. Yeah. And then moving out of Miami, you return to here in Los Angeles. What uh, what general part of LA are you in? It seems like near Beverly Hills, maybe. You can come over. That's, oh. <laughs> that's what this is about. That's what I'm building up to, yeah. You, wait, you guessed it was Beverly Hills? I, maybe I was just confused by the resistance party. That seems like that's almost the boat elite part of L.A., don't you think? It Well, definitely. That's yeah. the housewives <laughs> kind of area. That's the um, – no, no. Very, live- it feels very fortified anytime I'm there. There's like hedges and mm-hmm. fences in a trying not to be a fort way, being forts all the time. Well, there is that part of my book where I talk about the, the fort-like nature of my – block, right? Maybe that's what caused it. I think, yeah, that and the resistance party, I think I got confused. Yeah. Oh, no, the resistance party is very east side. So no, we're in like Hollywood, Los Feliz. Yeah. But you, and so you return and then I I feel like there's so many great stories in here of groups of people sort of having a crazy brain wormy kind of belief that they've all picked up and you're at a a resistance party and and the party's fine. It's people gathering and trying to figure out what to do, but they are 
A, talking about how do we impeach Trump like within months of inauguration. Yes. It's now Rob it Reiner seems very and Moby. It's at my, at, at my neighbor Stephanie Miller's house. She has a liberal radio show. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they're all trying to figure out how we're going to deal with President Pence. Yeah, like immediately. Mm-hmm. And then and then also there's this guy, and, I, and I've seen him around on Twitter. Maybe he's great. Uh, his name's Malcolm Nance, and he's a cybersecurity expert who is telling everyone, it sounds like he's doing a big showy, I can't possibly tell you what I know about the P-tape, and then laying out all this information he thinks he has about the P-tape, which if people don't know, that's, that's a, I think, apocryphal video of the president paying prostitutes to urinate on a bed in a Russian hotel room, and that's compromised against him. Uh, it's a whole conspiracy theory, whole thing. But by the way, I, I felt like the people at the table with me weren't keeping up on internet porn culture. <laughs> because at this point, from Go what on. I've seen, right. a P-tape is not going to freak anyone out. Yeah, the, the world would roll with it. Yeah. Probably I, pretty okay. I yeah. think if, if Trump was involved in uh, Russian prostitutes, I don't think urination is going to what freaks people out at this point. Yeah, as I understand it, the apocryphal P-tape does not involve him having sex with anyone. I don't think so either. Just yeah. paying women to pee on each other. On an yeah. empty bed. <laughs> and a bed that Obama had once slept in? Is that part of the... That's the legend, yeah. That's the legend. No, that's not going to upset... That'll just get him votes, I think. Yeah, yeah. Scat. <laughs> scat would cost him. But I think the urine, he's fine with. Yeah. It's a <laughs> there's a real line that people have drawn there. This is this is all on a whiteboard in some office for yeah. the 2020 This campaign. is when Dr. Drew like... talks about urine being uh, totally uh, disease-free. <laughs> And these are just a couple of many stories here where it seems like a really insular group of people. They're yeah. just latching on to some thing that it's. it seems really easy for any group of us to kind of get mission creep and go beyond information, like <laughs> to just start thinking a thing. Well, there's a chapter in which I hang out with this guy who was a fake news kingpin. Yeah, that was, oh, that was terrifying. Talk about him. Yeah. Yeah, this guy, Justin Kohler, he used to be a journalist and he got laid off from like a weekly in Fort Florida, I think Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And then he was, he was a news junkie and he was sitting at home doing like some kind of data work and didn't have his journalist friends to hang out with. So he got this idea, I'm going to sucker the alt right in with a fake story, reveal it as fake, and then they're going to feel like idiots and quit the alt right. Yeah. And like the first part of the plan worked. Like he wrote a fake news story about, you know, how great Trump was or awful Hillary Clinton was. And people loved it. And then he revealed it was fake and they did not care. Yeah, he really, he has missed some studies about how people hang out to misinformation. He did, he did miss some studies. That is very (laughs) true. That's a thing. So he Uh, taught me how to write some fake news, uh, which I attempted and kind of succeeded It was pretty, and it's, it's in the book. It's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Though yeah. Only, only the one on purpose fake news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah. One, one fake tweet that people people bought, and I felt pretty bad about it. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it, well, that stuff spreads. It goes. It really does. Fast. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it works. And we've got everything from the surprisingly affluent Trump people in Texas to I think I just offhand called it a resistance party. But for, for no, she calls it that. Yeah. Well, oh. and for people oh. who don't know what that is, it's a it's a it was a gathering of people doing hashtag resistance work. Like everybody comes to a, a home and and talks to each other about well, hey, it, like there were it seems like there were songwriters and artists and people saying like, what if we collaborate on X to to help the resistance? Yeah. And I'm sorry. The reason I brought up the Justin Kohler was that he had always thought from his experience until he was caught during the election that Republicans or the the far right were were particularly stupid and therefore fell for fake news. (laughs) And what he learned after the election is that whoever is not in power 
is more apt to believe something fake because they oh totally so so now the left is is more vulnerable to fake news than they had been before well we'll link about there was one tweet uh there it's a comedy account called pixelated boat mm-hmm. uh, but it's a tweet about the gorilla channel have you have you seen oh this yeah tweet? of course that was it, that was presented by many news channels as being real yeah, and there was a, so it's this tweet where a guy who, again, his account name is Pixelated Boat, and the avatar is a pixelated picture of a boat. But it was just a fake chunk of a news story about how when Donald Trump is just spending personal time watching TV, he forces his staff to put on the Gorilla Channel, mm-hmm. which is a, just a thing he decided exists, which is a TV channel that shows videos of gorillas. <laughs> uh, and this account just posted it, and then everyone reported it. They were like, right, oh, the, that's a The thing. whole story was that the um, White House had a scramble to create yes. a Gorilla <laughs> Channel by piecing together clips <laughs> right. and, and feeding it into the TV as if it were a channel. Yeah, yeah. Because he just decided this exists. And so staff are (laughs) gathering San Diego Zoo videos. And uh, and so we've talked about the populists you met and the elites you met. And then I think we can proceed to Scott Adams in particular. Yeah, you're particularly interested Uh, in Scott Adams. Because here's the thing. I I grew up and and, uh, because my dad was in software in particular. And Mm -hmm. so I was exposed to Dilbert when I was like six or seven. Oh, Uh, and and what were your what were your feelings about Dilbert? Like when the rest of us were looking at peanuts or uh, whatever was (laughs) important to us. I saw those two. But I I thought Dilbert was great. And I think I recognized the joke structure, especially early Dilbert. Like it was solid. Yeah, for sure. But so Scott Adams, I think he's probably of all the people in the entire world, there's probably the biggest divide in perception about him between like very online people and people who are not on the Internet that much. Yes. Folks who are not on the Internet that much know Scott Adams as the creator and artist of Dilbert. He makes the Dilbert comic strip in your newspaper, which he still does. Still does it. Yep. Uh, and people who know his internet presence currently, he's one of the most vociferous, like pro Trump political commentators for all sorts of wild reasons. And then you, Joel, know him and you visited his mansion in uh, Northern California. I feel like th- this is the perfect, like, Venn diagram center overlap for cracked. The brand, right? Yeah. You've got the comedy plus the history and politics. Like it's It's really exciting. Oh yeah. That's why we're on Dilbert. And, and I do right away. I want to verify, does he have a, Mm -hmm. it's a swimming pool. And then above it, there is like a sort of tower structure in his home. That's shaped like Dilbert's head. Is that accurate? That is exactly accurate. That exists in the world. Well, exists in Scott Adams' house. Yeah, he oh, had boy. this house built, house <laughs> built over many, many years. In fact, while it was getting built, he got divorced. So he and his yeah. wife had planned this house and it was finished while they were no longer together. But yes, the house is shaped in such a way that the back of it, which you know, is where it faces the pool, the largest part of that is shaped like Delbert's head <laughs> with the windows as his eyes. Oh, God. So it looks like it's looking at you? Yes. Oh, weird. I called it the... Um, <laughs> I forgot what I called it, but it was like a temple of populism. Yeah. Because Dilbert, (laughs) I came to understand from talking to Scott Adams, represents this very, what I think of as a populist belief. Because it's not just that Dilbert's boss is an idiot. Right. It's Dilbert's boss's boss is an idiot. And and I said to him, how far does this go? And and I thought in a very funny way, he said to me, it's turtles all the way up. (laughs) That's pretty good. Which I thought was really, really good. But yeah, his belief is that the further up you go, the less people know. Yeah. And that everyone is full of crap and faking it. And the truth is a guess at best. Yeah. It's all kind of baked into Dilbert, even though he was not a Republican until Trump, even though he he has some very liberal beliefs. 
as we would have think of it as the, the traditional left right spectrum, the laborer versus the capitalist. Like you're you're rooting for Dilbert, the laborer. You think I know that's not how it works, but no, you are. You're definitely rooting against the system. Yeah. More than anything. And that the further you go up the system, the the dumber people get. So he believes he believes that, like he said to me, Trump is the best negotiator because he doesn't know anything. <laughs> And that in a world where there's an <laughs> okay. nearly infinite amount of information, right? no one can know anything. Everyone's in a fog. And the best way you can operate is just aggressively. Yeah. Because isn't there, there's one part where he talks about Trump's trade deals mm-hmm. and says that, and he says exactly that. He says like, no one in the world understands trade deals. Yes. And so all you need is somebody loud and aggressive and you'll just get more stuff. He's like the dairy guy doesn't know <laughs> it. I think the cheese guy, even though dairy and cheese are... Related, he said yeah, they, don't, that- <laughs> they don't know what each other is doing or no one can have enough knowledge. And, and that's what I feel like so many Americans, when they yell at their TV at the football coach, or they think if they were put in charge of the Middle East, they could fix it. People call dictators the great simplifiers because they present the things. I know everything. I know more than the generals. I can fix this. It just needs some common sense. Let's operate from our gut. Expertise right. is a con and, and leads to corruption. And that's what I think, especially as the world gets more and more complicated, that's a really dangerous philosophy that I'm really scared about. And that that's what yeah. motivated me to write this book more than anything. And that's real clear. Like there's even, you cite a Trump tweet tweet where he claims that airplanes are too complicated now. There's too many computers in them. Well, uh, after the Boeing the, incident. Yeah. yeah. He said the whole problem is, you know, it, it always reverts to a strong man. We need like a pilot who can, you know, just operated with his bare hands, and, you know, <laughs> right. through bravery. And I was, if you look at stats. We've massively improved airline safety with computers. Yeah. And you don't even need to look at stats. When I was growing up, again, super old man, literally when I was a kid and we flew in airplanes and they landed relatively softly, you'd clap. The whole airplane clapped if it sure. wasn't too hard. And when it, And those barf bags that they still somehow put there. Yeah. They were there for a reason because flying on an airplane was horrible. All the wobbling and the. the oh, God. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it was both dangerous and unpleasant. And he and the great simplifier is like, we got too many computers in these things. Right. Just it's like <laughs> it's so arrogant. It's because because I don't understand it. It can't be true. Yeah. Which leads to conspiracy theory because conspiracy theory is all about like a very simplified view of the world where there's a bad guy and I am smart enough to have figured out this simple thing. And now I, now I'm Sherlock Holmes and I have to go stop it. Totally. It's very empowering and very simplifying and very scary. And with, and with characters too, you, you revolutionized my understanding of Scott Adams because I, because <laughs> I, I see this happen and I think, oh, my Dilbert hero's fallen apart. What's happened? And among other things, there's kind of an origin story where he gets a disease mm. uh, and you tell this fascinating story about him having spasmodic dysphonia. Uh, which I had never heard of, but apparently it's a really rare, really painful disease. Yeah, and he couldn't talk. It, like his fingers started doing a thing and then suddenly he couldn't talk and his body was locked up. It was, it was uh, sounded horrible. Yeah. yeah. And then so he went to a bunch of doctors who told him it was psychological. Yeah. Uh, and then he felt very upset because he felt like he didn't feel seen, right? Like oh, he had this yeah. problem. People were telling him it's in his head and he felt like it wasn't in his head. And then he finally found this pretty amazing doctor who runs the uh, ear and neck, ear and neck, ear, I think, uh, something like that, division yeah. at UCLA. And he's a very famous doctor. And he came up with this kind of thing where he took a nerve out of somewhere else in his body and replaced a nerve in his throat and allowed him to talk. 
But in Scott Adams' mind, the corrupt medical establishment let him down. Right. And that you can't trust experts because they didn't know anything. They didn't know about this obscure disease. Because in his admittedly horrible experience, his first couple doctors didn't know what it was. I think he went to a lot of doctors who didn't know what it was. Yeah. Uh, But in my version of the story, like we live in such an amazing, complicated society that there's an expert. Right. (laughs) That he was able to find thanks to the Internet, like who had studied this so much. He had a solution to this totally obscure problem. But it's a totally different way of looking at the world that the two of us have. Yeah, because this disease, I didn't know it, but it affects less than 50,000 people in the entire world. And as you say, he, Scott Adams is like, the experts let me down. I figured it out. But Scott Adams figured it out by Googling what experts say. (laughs) So (laughs) he didn't take a scalpel to himself, like replace a nerve in his body. (laughs) Right. He didn't like invent medicine. Right. He probably can't even draw someone doing that. They just all have that tie that goes up. Like that's all they can do. <laughs> that's the operation. Um, and then also he, Scott Adams, it, there's so many things. He claims in the book that nobody understands the Fed, even though he studied economics. And so he, he should know what the Fed does. They manipulate interest rates to manage the economy. At that point, uh, I, I had trouble believing him a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. then and then there's this conspiracy theory here where you, you describe that you're with Scott and just offhand, he says that Justin Trudeau, prime minister of Canada, is Fidel Castro's son. He's the son of the, the former communist leader of Cuba. And then you dig and learn that this is a whole widespread Internet conspiracy theory, uh, mostly just based on their faces being similar. But the timeline of where and when Trudeau's mother has been makes it impossible uh, that this would have been like he was born before uh, Trudeau was born before she ever went to Cuba ever. There's no way this could have happened. Yeah. There's also that thing I heard before about Bill Clinton having an illegitimate, I guess, half black son from a prostitute. Yeah, that's a story out there. Yeah. The guy's name is Danny. And Danny has actually tweeted about the Justin Trudeau thing. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, saying that it's real. But yeah, that's, that was disproven oh, no. with DNA, but that doesn't stop people from believing it. Like yeah, with DNA and the timeline and everything else, yeah. there's still people who think the prime minister of Canada is Fidel No, I think the DNA so. is just for the Clinton. Clinton DNA is oh. very easy to get. There's probably oh, yeah. some in this room. But yeah, the Trudeau well. DNA, DNA is a little tougher. Sure, sure. He keeps yeah. it closer to the vest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but and then you have from Scott and, and to other people, you find this thing of a split between intellectual elites and boat elites. Yeah. And it, it seems like especially the boat elites are just as prone to conspiracy theories as any of the stereotypical populist Trump person we think of. Yeah. I started thinking about the boat elite because there's just going back quite far, but let's just start it with like Sarah Palin. There's a there's yeah. a real march against the elites from Republicans running for office. In fact, this last election cycle, there were two congressmen who ran with the slogan, defeat the elite. You know, that was oh, the placards really? they put on their lawn and behind <sighs> them and stuff. It's too bad that rhymes. It's <laughs> a little too bad. Ah. And so I heard Trump make this speech in, I think, Minnesota. And out of nowhere, he said, why do they get to be the elite? We're the elite. Like it went against the whole messaging. He's like, we're the elite. We should be called the elite. This is so weird after demonizing the elite for many decades. And he said, we have bigger houses. We have better boats. And he listed a couple (laughs) of economic things about why he felt like he and his followers should be called the elite. And then this got a big reaction. He kept making this, this speech or throwing this into speeches. And then he started calling his group the super elite. (laughs) <laughs> and us, the elite. Uh, and so I decided, uh, because I hate people who own boats, I think they're horrible people. 
Oh, all right. I think they can take it. Yeah. I mean, any group, look, we've said to people who own boats, if you can just get 11 miles offshore, do whatever you want, just leave us alone. Like they're clearly (laughs) horrible people. Uh, So, so I call them the boat elite and I call us the intellectual elite. And it turns out this economist, Vilfredo Pareto. Yeah. It was fascinating. A turn of the century, Italian economist and political theorist. Yeah. yeah, Mussolini w- went to his class for free to just check it out as like a kid. And he like made- What? Yeah, so Mussolini <laughs> was a big Pareto fan and he put Pareto in his cabinet. Pareto was much older than Mussolini, but he put him in his cabinet. He was like the Weird. fascist economist. Okay. <laughs> He's the guy who came up with the 80-20 rule. Oh yeah, it's a, it's 20% of the population has 80% of the wealth at any time. Yeah, but then they use it for all kinds of other things like 80% of- the work comes from 20% of your workers. Like there's all kinds of 80-20 rules. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a convincing sounding pair of percentages for anything. It turns out to be pretty true in a lot of instances. Yeah. Um, you know, 80% of your sales come from 20% of your clients. Like it's weird. It works out a lot. Huh. But he uh, came up with this theory of the, he wrote a piece in like 1900 called The Circulation of the Elite. Yeah. And his theory was that the graveyards are made of the elite, or I forgot how he put oh, it. Uh, I just I wrote it down. History is a graveyard of elites. Yes. And yeah. the idea is that these two different kinds of elites, the, in fact, the kind Trump is talking about, the people who care about money and the people who care about ideas, yeah. are, and Nietzsche talks about this too, uh, are kind of always vying for control of the populace. And one of them is going to win out over the other. And I feel like that's the time we're going through where there's this battle between a very Roman, tribal, economically motivated group versus the group that's been in power, certainly since World War II, probably before. And we've gone mm. through this at other times, even within our own country, but certainly in the world. And I feel like that's that's the real battle that's raging right now. Yeah, you're, especially in the at the very beginning of the book, you talk about the, the night Trump gets elected and you specifically frame it as this is the first time this kind of thing has happened since Andrew Jackson. Like it's yeah. not a it's Who's, not a Democrat Republican thing. Yeah. It's, it's this is the first time since the since 1828 that someone who is so fully explicitly rejecting the elites is now the president. Yeah. Until Jackson, you basically had all founding fathers or their son. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that, that 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 election was between Andrew Jackson, who can fight versus John Quincy Adams, who can write. Yeah. Because who needs a literate president? Yeah. Stupid. Well, versus one who who was a war hero. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, came from the hills of Tennessee and had a tomahawk uh, tattoo, I believe, on his leg. Tattooed president is cool. That's, that's very it. cool. Yeah. There's a there's the Andrew Jackson story where someone comes in, I think, to the White House to shoot him. Oh, yeah, and he beats him up? Yeah, the gun, yeah. and he's in crutches because he's done some jackassy kind of thing, uh, <laughs> Andrew Jackson. And the guy, the gun doesn't work, and he just beats the crap out of him with his crutches. <laughs> it's a very different kind of president than the Founding Fathers. Yeah, that uh, I found a Smithsonian article that pulls, uh, it's an 1824 newspaper editorial because uh, Quincy Adams and Jackson ran against each other then. And it says, quote, although General Jackson has not been educated at foreign courts and reared on sweetmeats from the tables of kings and princes, we think him nevertheless much better qualified to fill the dignified station of president of the United States than Mr. John Quincy Adams. That's, Cause like, I wish I had that in the book. John Quincy Adams wasted his time being a diplomat in Europe for many years, understanding the world better. Stupid. Who does that? Well, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a constant thread of believing the people who are the elite are kind of corrupt tricksters who are using legalese language 
and yeah. they're, they're just tricking us, right? And that basically an educated person is an immoral person. There's a real connection between those two ideas. Sure. Uh, and that a person who operates from their gut is a trustworthy and moral person. And that, that comes up uh, throughout history. You've got quotes from everybody from Ronald Reagan to Charles Koch to uh, some KKK folks, uh, just just everybody saying all these things about, ah, the, the, the educated and the elite, they're just doing it as kind of a scheme to be in charge. We talked about stats before where people don't trust institutions. And you got things about everything from the media not being trusted anymore. They polled Americans in 1976. 28% of them said they had a great deal of confidence in the press, which is not huge. But in 2016, that was down to 8%. Uh, so that's that's across all parties. Just everyone thinks at least some corner of the media is is uh, not something they can be confident in, doesn't work. And then there's many stats about the government being that way. And even there's a stat here back in 1960, 58% of Americans believed most people can be trusted, uh, 58%. And then in 2014, that had dropped nearly by half. Yeah. If you have a society where you can't trust each other, I mean, that that literally is just what society is. Like we we trust that money yeah. is worth something. None of these things are actually, you know, enforceable. We just all have to have some kind of trust. And once we don't trust each other, any kind of social or economic or romantic interaction becomes very difficult. And it also seems like, because one, one reason you're so perfect for writing this kind of book is, as you say, you, you know a lot of these people who qualify as elites, either for intellectual or boat purposes. Like you knew Tucker Carlson, you knew Scott Adams. There's one part where you wonder what senators think of a thing, and then you email Cory Booker. I went to college with him, yeah. Because you know him from college. <laughs> with this intellectual and boat divide, is that reflective of a broader thing where the elites are now not trusting each other? Because it seems like maybe in the past they did more because they were all circulating yeah. in the same scenes. No, I think so. I was just reading a piece about Brett Kavanaugh and where he's kind of allowed to go in Washington, D.C. You I, mean like where, where he can go, like restaurants and bars mm -hmm, and stuff? Exactly, yeah. Oh, okay. And I think there used to be... <laughs> I, I want to know what the Kavanaugh district is. Where is that okay? <laughs> uh, it was the Chevy Chase Country Club. Okay. And it was the school where he is still the basketball coach of the girls' school. All those schools seem to be cool with him. Okay. But well, he wears a baseball cap in public usually. In the, in the Avengers movies, when they're trying to be inconspicuous, they wear a hat and not their uniform. It sounds like he's doing that. He doesn't wear the it's robes. Like when out. Captain America's at the Apple Store, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't wear the robes when he goes out. <laughs> that's, that's his. That's his main move. I, I am realizing they're not like popes that can dress normally uh, <laughs> in public. Uh, okay, <laughs> they're not nuns. Yeah, no. So he. Uh, so, but there used to be certainly more places where left and right could kind of interact without yeah. attacking each other, and I think that's that's falling apart for sure. That's where the battle's taking place. Whereas it used you're used to, used to have your differences of agreement, but generally, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats could could get along because their disagreements weren't they they weren't as dramatic as the one that we're experiencing right now. I remember when the 2016 election was going on, my, long before I thought Trump could win, I thought like, oh, this is the first election that's actually about something. It's not just about like <laughs> arguing over the number numbers that, you know, what should the tax rate yeah. be or how much should we spend on defense or like that? Those were like, how much capitalism should I dip in my communism? You know, this is, yeah. this is a real debate <laughs> over like who should be an American. Maybe the first presidential election I remember really concretely understanding was 2000 and everywhere from journalism to comedy, the, the main trope was Gore and Bush are kind of the same. Right. Uh, isn't it funny how they're the same? 
Yeah, how do we even decide? This is terrible. They're so the same. And, yeah. And that feels like a billion years ago. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And yet there are still plenty of Americans who feel like they're all the same. They're all corrupt and looking out for themselves. And yeah, Trump may be the exception to that in their eyes or one of the exceptions. Right. Because he's uh, he's cutting through the red tape. And in their defense, he is doing that. He is like yeah. destroying the system <laughs> right, <laughs> as best he can and trying to make it into you know a kingdom. And then as far as uh, the the circulation of elites being a thing, uh, it seems like the the boat elites are maybe winning. They're they're more in charge at, the, at this particular moment. Can you see a situation where the intellectual elites would flip the trend? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the interesting thing about living through history. I could see this whole thing just exhausting itself out. This is just the last gasp of old rural white people in France and England and here and et cetera. And that's going to die out real soon. I, I could see another scenario where this, this becomes a wave of fascism. Like, I, I just don't know. Yeah, there's one, especially with the international look, there's one stat you've got where they surveyed Americans born before World War II, and they asked them, how do you feel about living in a democracy? Rate it 1 to 10, 10 being the best. And 72% of them said 10 out of 10, maximum points. I love democracy. And then they did that survey with Americans born after 1980 and found only 30% of them said the same. So less than half of the amount and uh, way less than a majority said democracy, definitely the best government. And then they found similar numbers in Britain and Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. That's spooky. It's really spooky. Democracy is frustrating. The republic that we built and the other liberal democracies have built are slow moving beasts, right? Right. And- Plato predicted all this, that it's very frustrating if you're the majority and you're like, we don't want any foreigners here. We all decided that, we voted for it, make it happen. And then there's courts and there's constitutional protections and all these things that make that not happen. Yeah, it, and s- the ramifications of how that would work in life to kick them all out. Right, yeah. all those things <laughs> that you kind of just like, this is slow, it's ineffective, it's not giving the majority what we were promised we get in a democracy, which is what we want right now and voted for. We've built in all these wonderful safeguards to protect minorities and, you know, give people human rights. When those things get in the way, people get super frustrated. There was one survey here. It said nearly 40 percent of Americans who didn't graduate college said that they want, quote, a strong leader unchecked by elections and Congress. And that was a recent survey. Nearly 40 percent of the U.S. Yeah, a lot of people think the Uh, military is the only trustworthy group and they should run the country. A poll said that in 1995, only one in 16 Americans said it's good or very good to have the army run the country. And in 2014, that went up to one in six, uh, which is a, a much healthier, well, not not a much unhealthier percentage, but it's bigger is what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, healthy. Yeah, that's, it's crazy because no general would tell you that. Or well, in, in, in certain tin pot uh, uh, yeah, dictatorships yeah, yeah. out there, they would, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, here, yeah, in our country. <laughs> yeah. We've self-identified as elites, and and uh, many listeners maybe do too. You talk in the book, but people about, don't. That's why I wrote this. I mean, that's why I titled this book what I did, and why people why I wrote it because I feel like yeah. we've been this self-apologetic group who is like everyone's just as good as everyone else at everything, and we. I'm not a member of the elite, and and I think it's become this dirty word, and expertise has become dirty because of it. And I think yeah. the only things you're allowed to yeah. be elite about are an athlete, military, maybe a model. Or maybe that's just a modeling agency. 
Oh, I think it's uh, both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know there's very few things you're allowed to be elite at. Right. Like like quarterbacks is Joe Flacco elite. Like that's yeah. that's the question you can ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, yeah, I've, I am. I'm only comfortable calling myself an elite in this extremely specific situation of us talking where where we've clearly defined elite as the the positive, simple thing it is. And, yeah. And it's not the connotation that everyone else has for it. Yeah. And I think that's become a real danger of apologizing for any expertise or, or intelligentsia that you have. It's, it's just, it's shame. You have, so, so if you go to the symphony, if you, if you read a novel, it's like, you have to apologize for it at this point. And, yeah. I, and I, I think that's not a decent society that's going to thrive. Well, and how, how much of that feeling that you need, we need to apologize is kind of self-inflicted or, or like preemptive towards a, a pressure we think we'll get. Yeah. yeah. It may get, but like suck it up. You can handle it. You're elite. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and uh, and then toward the end of the book, that's you the get motto into... of Syracuse, I believe. <laughs> in Latin, though, suck it up. You're elite. I I really want to see the Latin for suck it up. Some classic <laughs> scholar send that over at Alex Schmidt on Twitter. Hit me up. Uh, well, and then uh, toward the end of the book, you uh, you get into essentially what is the good way to be an elite. What is the positive right. way to do it? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, after being lectured by the good people in Miami, Texas in the nicest way possible. I kind of came around to one thing that they kept nicely saying to me that I've probably heard my whole life that I've brushed aside, which is that I'm smug. And, <laughs> and I think I think smugness is a trait that a lot of elites have that is not a particularly intellectual elite trait, or it shouldn't be. Huh. Uh, and I, I think it turns people off and does us a lot of damage. And I think hearing... From people who voted for Trump and listening to them and realizing that their grievances are not illegitimate, even if they're just a loss of acceleration and not speed, you know, even if they're still very powerful, right? but they feel like they've lost some power, that's a grievance. And, and rural America is dying and they're in trouble. And there are values there that they don't want to lose. And those are all legitimate uh-huh. things that we shouldn't just scream racist at, even if some of it is racist. Because we're all somewhat racist. Like, I just think using that yeah. as, as the, the, the weapon to bludgeon them with is not effective. As far as I can tell, it often seems like there's a lot of racism getting bound up in also terrible policy ideas. And yeah. so it seems like it's also hard to not call it racist when it is. That's fine. But but dismiss everything as racist is a little lazy. Yeah, it would so, be. Yeah. So, so I think looking at what's causing that racism, if you want to look at it that way, is useful. Look, the people of Miami, Texas, I think I really like them. I think they had some really smart ideas about how to live that I've taken on into my own life about, you know, gathering more with knowing my neighbors, gathering more. That's and great. Fun. Yeah. But I don't think they should be making national policy. Like they're sure. living 30 years behind me. So I, and they still want cell phones. They still want to shop at, you know, Walmart and buy stuff from other countries. So we should consider them when we make laws about you know, estates, estate tax laws as far as farms or whatever their concerns are, they're probably legitimate. And they feel like all the laws are coming to them from either Austin or DC and they're not being considered. Mm -hmm. And and they should be considered. I wish they would think twice before applying what is a small part of the world to the globe. And maybe not just elites, but everybody, it would help if everyone realized that A, almost none of us have the knowledge base to govern. Yeah. Uh, it's just overall, no yeah. matter what our politics is. And then B, you, we aren't going to get everything we want. It, it seems like a lot of folks are, for instance, seeking the exact Democratic presidential candidate that believes everything they think. 
and that's probably not out yeah. there for anybody. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. I, and as far as like, it's very hard to govern. I, I tried to put that to the test by trying to be the mayor of LA for one day. In the oh book. yeah. We didn't, even, I we had, didn't touch um, on that. Cause you know, mayor Eric Garcetti in LA and followed him around. It was great. Yeah. So he let me follow him around and I thought I would just make all of his decisions before him and he could tell me how he would have made it. I can compare myself. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I, what I realized from a few hours in was that's not how being mayor works. Like you don't just sit around and say yes or no, which I sure is how Trump thinks it works. Yeah. It was really about having a truly deep knowledge on the large level and the local level of all of the players and just getting them to share information with each other and with you and knowing the right person to to call. It was so much more networky and nuanced and rich right. what he did to solve problems than than any yes or knowing. And I wouldn't, if I were having to do that job, wouldn't have the foggiest idea of who to call or, or, or how to work the system. I mean, Eric knows a ton of people, both from being in this his whole life and being the president of the city council, but also- yeah, And his father was the LA district attorney yeah, and he, yeah. he was kind of born into it too. But he also lives that life. Like he's out all the time. It's exhausting. Like getting to know everyone who works in every little piece of the organizations that I'm a part of, he's- <laughs> He was members of two of them. It's just so much networking is necessary to be able to run anything. And then also, uh, I I want to hit bef- just before we go uh, the idea of humble elitism, mm-hmm. uh, which is yeah. it, it's that uh, is it's your term, and I, I think it's a solid one. Yeah, because I used to go on like cable news shows sometimes, and they would ask me questions about the news, and I would answer them. Uh, <laughs> and I, looking back, not I, like a quiz, right? Like a pundit. Like a pundit. Like yeah. I would go on like Bill Maher and you'd get there in the afternoon and they'd give you stacks of paper because they, they're constantly changing what the show's going to be about to keep it current. I remember I got a stack that was about the telecom bill. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go on TV and talk about the telecommunications bill. Like that's, that's not possible. Like I should not, <laughs> like I've just been picked off the street to talk about something really complicated uh-huh. that yeah. experts have worked on. And I, so I just remember like, I'm just going to come up with one dick joke about this and keep quiet the rest of the time. Okay. But I think a lot of people who are in the elite, they get kind of cocky and they think they know a lot about a lot of things. I think they Mm. tend to mansplain a lot. You know, that kind of power can, can make you a real dick. seems like it'd go to your head. Yeah. Very rapidly. Yeah. I mean, I think, I'm sure if you listen to this conversation, both of us, I've done a fair amount of that. <laughs> uh, but I can't, I can't believe you read this book. That's so nice of you. Oh, that's me? so much work. Well, that's the thing. Like I, I identify very strongly with people who have an interest in knowing stuff. And well, that's usually pe- meant reading a whole shitload, you know, to do it. Yeah, you picked out like all the stats in the book. I love it. Yeah, I love it. You're yeah. ready for Jeopardy now. <laughs> You've got like extra stats that you can use. <laughs> I, I have terrible news about the timeline. I have already done Jeopardy. What? So. No, it can't be. <laughs> I'm sure they'll let you back. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My enormous thanks to Joel Stein for taking time out of his fancy elite lifestyle to explore Texas, Los Angeles, and the Scott Adams Manor's Dilbert Head Tower. That is a structure that exists in the world, folks. It's just out there. 
And in our food notes, you will find something else out in the world, Joel's book. It's titled In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. That book releases Tuesday, October 22nd. So if you listen to this episode right when it hit your feed, that is less than 24 hours away. And for the rest of you, the book is out right now. Beyond that link, you'll also find the other sources we turned to and cited on this episode. The vast majority of, of all those stats and polls and fascinating things come from Joel's book and, and the journalism and the research he did. Beyond that, there's a few things like a Smithsonian article where you can find the editorial written in 1824 about how John Quincy Adams is too fed on European royal sweetmeats uh, to be president, even though that's a description of him being a diplomat for the United States from a very early age, which is, you know, pretty useful experience. I think we should pick someone like, say, a longtime Secretary of State to be the president. But that's just me. I'm a nut. And enough about me being a nut. Our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. Uh, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to shows. They let anybody in there, not just the elites. But those uh, reviews are surprisingly important to the algorithms that operate all of the things in our world. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, that is a cost-free thing you can do to help the show. And in the meantime, if you hated this show, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where I, I find that the boat elites never seem to feel any shame about anything, you know? And I, and I think it ties into their, their broader conviction that, that super tangible stuff is what's important, such as a boat. Uh, getting a mean tweet doesn't seem to affect them because I, I think they're sort of insulated from it. It's really impressive. Is it impressive in a good way? Probably not. In the meantime, my own Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmittstagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips and more and i'm here to say we will be back next week with more cracked podcast so how about that talk to you then This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.